When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. This is the first paragraph of the unanimous Declaration of Independence of the 13 original colonies. A declaration. A declaration to the superpower on earth, their motherland, England, that they were now viewing themselves as independent. I can only imagine the weight of such a declaration. The sobriety that they must have felt upon voting is depicted well in the recent miniseries called uh, John Adams. Upon receiving 12 yeses and one abstention, the motion carried, and they were now free from England voting on this Declaration of Independence. And the Congress, at least in this miniseries, sat in silence after voting. They realized what they had just done, that it was incredibly weighty for them to vote to remove themselves and, and to view themselves as independent from England. A declaration of independence, or really a declaration of any kind, has to have an element of weight to it, doesn't it? And as you look within our text this morning, we see a recommitment to God on the part of the people of Israel in the form of three main declarations. So what we have before us this morning is not a declaration of independence from God, but a declaration of allegiance to God. And our text, again, really begins at the end of chapter 9 in verse 38. Why don't you look there again with me where you see, because of all this, all of that had transpired, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So if you consider even the Declaration of Independence, you have the Declaration itself in its lengthy form, and then you have all of the names at the bottom of the Declaration of Independence, don't you? Names like John Adams, Samuel Adams, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and of course you have John Hancock, which is large and center of the Declaration of Independence there at the bottom. And it's the same thing in some ways in our text. They, they have the document... They have this firm covenant in writing and then there is this portion on the bottom where they can all press their seals into the covenant. This is their declaration of allegiance to God. And in verse 1, you see the John Hancock. You see the front and center name of this document. The first name, Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the governor. My friends, leaders are leaders and what they do is lead. It's very simple. Like the Congress that voted to change their relationship to England, Nehemiah and the rest listed here would vote and agree and covenant and declare a recommitment, a reestablished relationship on their part to God, that they would be faithful to him as his people. So it was not as though God had changed. It wasn't as though he had changed within his word, as though he kind of... Changed even himself and the way he was dealing with his people. God doesn't change. God had always been faithful to his people, yet the people themselves had changed, which is why they so desperately needed revival, which is what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks. But now the people are coming around. They're, they're hearing the word of God. They had this renewed thirst for the word of God that we saw back in chapter 8. They had in chapter 9, they had unreservedly confessed their sins to God after sitting under the word. 
And now in chapter 10, in light of their thirst for the word of God, in light of their new confession, they are now committing themselves to their God through these main declarations. And notice the first, which you can find on the back of your bulletin. We declare, we will walk in step with all of God's word. We will walk in step with all of God's word. Look at verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath, here it is, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and His rules and His statutes. Now, for those of you who have been tuned in for the last couple of weeks, you know that this has been one of the main thrusts of these chapters of Nehemiah. In chapter 8, we clearly again saw that uh, this first step to biblical revival and the step that these people were currently experiencing was this renewed thirst for God's Word. Remember how they asked uh, Ezra to bring the law. Uh, Ezra, bring the law so that you would read it for us. And then the law was explained to the people. So they had this renewed thirst for God's Word. Chapter 9, the heads of the households, remember, they reconvene right right after uh, the, the event in chapter 8. They reconvene and they spend three hours more in the Word of God. And then they spend three hours in confession of their sins and of the sins of their fathers and in worship to God. And they confess to Him, though, how they had walked out of step with the Word of God. And so in this moment, in chapter 10, they make a declaration that they will walk in step with all of God's Word. That word, all, is very important for you to see in verse 29. To observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord. You can mark it down that when genuine revival is happening in the hearts of God's people, loopholes are not being searched for. I won't do what I might view as a mega sin, something, something that's like a, a big deal, but a few lighter sins, not so bad. That, that, it's, that is not the thought of a revived person. They are not looking for loopholes. They're not looking for something that they can do. This isn't so bad, but this is okay. I can kind of sneak by. A, a revived person doesn't think that way. Maybe you could think of uh, the difference between a lie and a white lie, right? Well, a white lie isn't so bad. It's not hurting anybody. It doesn't hurt me. It doesn't hurt that person. But friends, a lie is a lie. God hates them. No lie is okay. Or you even consider Jesus' explanation of a few of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, we don't kill people, but we hate people. And Jesus says to hate somebody is to kill somebody in your heart. Or we won't commit adultery on our spouse, but we'll, we'll lust plenty. We'll look at pornography whenever we want to. Or we won't steal, but we'll covet within our hearts. So we don't do the, the big outward ugly sins because then everybody would see us do those things. But we'll commit deep ugly sins within our hearts and that's okay. That's not the thinking of a revived person. Or maybe you'll even take the time to take a passage of Scripture and, and twist it to your own understanding. 
that you refuse maybe your elders' input or your godly friends' input or godly family's input on a passage of Scripture and you, and you twist it to conform to your own opinion. That is not the thinking of a revived person because a revived person is somebody that does not view themselves as above the Word of God. They view themselves as somebody who is under the Word of God, willing to do all that it tells them to do. The person who is walking in step with the Word of God is the person who actively acknowledges and chooses and wills by the power of the Spirit to observe and to do all of God's commandments. So the reality is that you cannot have proper orthopraxy until you have the right orthodoxy. So your, your practice, what you do, how you live your life is really born out of what you know and what you understand about God's word, which is why the centrality of God's word should be evident in every Christian's life. How can you do the right thing until you know what God's word has to say in regard to that thing? This is the whole big idea that we've seen within these three chapters. It's their understanding of God's word that moves them to confession. It's their understanding of God's word that moves them to the right practice. It's their understanding of God's word that ultimately causes them to recommit themselves to God. So the first declaration is that they will walk in step with all of God's word. This is very broad. This is extensive. This is a a whole life commitment. But then the next couple declarations are much more specific. Notice. We declare, we will subject our relationships to God's will. The first kind of relationship that they would submit to God's will are their marital relationships. The second is their business relationships. Both of these, of course, encompassing so much of their lives. Look at verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So what is the... What the core of this is, is not interracial marriage. That, that's, not, that's not what is getting, they're trying to get across here. They're not saying that interracial marriage is wrong. Is wrong. This is not a form of racism on God's part or the, the people's part. This is not why the people are choosing not to give their daughters to other nations or take other nations' daughters for their sons. This is not a proof text to show that a black person shouldn't marry a white person, that a Chinese person shouldn't marry a Hispanic person, or anything like that. That is completely unbiblical, interracial marriage. There is nothing within the Bible that would say that that would be wrong. We are all one race. The problem is not that the people of Israel were marrying people of a different skin color. The point is that the people had recently, and some of you who know the book of Ezra in chapter 9 and 10, they had begun to deeply rebel against God by marrying people who were pagans. So rebels of God from distant lands who served other gods were intermarrying with the people of the one true God, Yahweh. So I want to be tender on this issue for those who have disobeyed the Lord in regard to this. But I don't want to be soft on the issue. Because the Bible is very clear, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. That a follower of Jesus does not, should not, must not marry a person who is not following after Jesus. A follower of Jesus will subject his or her relationships to God's will, and God's will is that his children marry only those who are God's children. 
So the word of God is, is clear on this subject, and I do not make it a point of this sermon to shame anybody who has entered into a marriage covenant relationship with an unbeliever. But we cannot deceive ourselves into thinking that the immediate and long-term consequences of this choice are no big deal, and that it has no real impact on our lives. The people of Israel, if you read what happens in Ezra, actually, what it seems like, actually end the marriages that they had with the unbelievers. This is how important it was in, the, in this context and in this day for them to intermarry with those who served other gods from other nations. But how does this carry over into the new covenant? Although an individual may have married an unbeliever, what is Paul's direction for those who have made this choice? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to see this clearly because I don't want to um, give the wrong impression in terms of what happens within Ezra or within Nehemiah. But I want you to see what Paul says within 1 Corinthians 7 on how we should handle this issue. This is all a matter of submitting our relationships to the will of God. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll begin reading in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates... Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will slave or save your wife? We'll flip back to Nehemiah. So the directive within 1 Corinthians is not to do what they did back in Ezra. And so if you do have a spouse that is an unbeliever, you should not seek to end that relationship. That is not what God's will for you would be. If as a result of your following Christ and you're pursuing Him avidly and, and, and your partner is following after the world avidly and they decide that they no longer want to be with you, Paul does allow for divorce in this case, but it should not be something that is sought. And in verse 16, you get the whole reasoning behind it. Because in our relationship to our spouse, the hope is that the unbelieving spouse will come to Jesus. This is the goal. And so you stay with them in part for the evangelism, for the glory of God that may happen within the heart of your spouse, for your unbelieving spouse to see your example and and, and your love for Christ. This is a powerful example. And so when the Spirit gives you opportunity, you take the time to explain the gospel to them, praying that God would save them. And so practically speaking, if you're single, do not even entertain the idea of marrying an unsaved person. If you are married to an unbeliever now, don't seek a way out of that marriage. Instead, pray for them. Pray for your own example. Pray for your gospel witness before them, which God may very well use and be pleased to save your, your spouse. If you are married and you're in a Christian marriage, seek to be an example to all of us in your love for one another and your care and your commitment to God. Give wise counsel to those who may be unmarried or who may be in a mixed marriage of this kind. But the Word of God is very clear on this. And the people within Nehemiah, as they're recommitting themselves to God, they're making this recommitment that they will not give their daughters to unbelievers. They will not take daughters for their sons, 
or wives for their sons who are unbelievers. They're choosing to submit their closest relationships to the will of God. But there's a second way that they submit their relationship to God, and that's in their business relationships. You see this in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land bring any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. There's been a lot of discussion even in our own country lately, hasn't there, about uh, trade deals, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And I don't know anything about uh, deals like this. I know not much about politics, so I'm not here to provide political commentary. That's not my job. But one thing I do know about NAFTA and, and the whole issue behind NAFTA is it has absolutely nothing to do with violating the Sabbath day. Right? It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to pull out of NAFTA because they want to trade on the Sabbath day. No, that had absolutely nothing to do with it. Yet here you have the people of Israel submitting their business relationships to the will of God and that God requires no work on the Sabbath day. And so they're saying, we're just not going to do business. Closed for the weekend. We're, We're not going to do any kind of business on the Sabbath day. Therefore, if anybody from another land would come into their land and desire to have and to do business... They were not going to do that. So whether it was on the Sabbath day, whether it was doing, during a certain feast or a certain festival or anything like that, they would not do business. So you come into Jerusalem and you desire to sell your grain or your silk or your spices, we're closed for business. The end of the verse even saying that they would hold to the law and not force anybody to pay the debt on the seventh year. So what they could trade or buy and what they could demand from another person or their harvesting of crops and so forth, all of these interactions would be placed squarely underneath the word of God. They would only do as it required. And so you can see very clearly, ultimately and very broadly speaking, they were declaring that they would remain in step with the word of God. A couple of examples are then seen that they would submit their relationships to the will of God. Their personal close relationships would be handled as God had prescribed. Their business relationships would be handled as God has prescribed. These two things, very general principles, encapsulate all of their lives. But there is the last unmistakable declaration that the people of God make, which is found in verses 32 to 39. We declare we will individually sacrifice for the temple of God. In each of the rest of the verses in this chapter, you see the words, the house of our God, the house of our God, the house of our God. In verse 39, the final verse of the chapter, the last sentence of the verse says, we will not neglect the house of our God. Of course, you know about the temple, right? That this was the the house of God. This is where it all went down in regard to the worship of God. And you see that they obligate themselves to give a third part of the shekel for the service of the temple. They bring their bread. They devote themselves to bring wood for the offerings. Certainly they would have gone through a lot of wood because of all the the many hundreds and hundreds of of burnt offerings that they would have. Verse 35 says that they would bring their harvest to the house of God. They would bring their sons to serve. They would bring the cattle for sacrifice. They would bring dough and wine and oil they would give their tithes the fruits of their trees on and on all of this coming from the people who are committing themselves to this task for the temple of god again climaxing in that last sentence of the entire chapter we will not neglect the house of our god 
Now you might be wondering where we're going to go in regard to application to this. Is this going to now turn into a sermon about tithing in regard to the temple of God? And how you should provide for what might we refer to as the house of God, right? Not at all. And let me explain to you why. The New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament temple is not a building. The building here at Nine Reed Road in Windsor is not God's house as the temple was God's house in the Old Testament. But listen carefully. In Nehemiah 10 here, where they keep referencing the temple, we should not carry over an application that has a one-to-one uh, uh, one for one between the, the, the physical temple of their time and the physical building of our time. What we need to consider is where God dwells. The temple was where God dwelt. Within the Old Testament, He dwelled in Eden, and then He dwelled in the tabernacle, and then He dwelt in the temple. It's where they would offer their sacrifice for sins they committed. This building, that temple, those, that tabernacle, was so vital for the people of God. But under the New Covenant, we're no longer committed to a building in that sense. Instead, what we find at the dawn of the New Testament is that the presence of God comes to us, not in a place like a temple, but in a person. What does John tell us? It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you go further down in John chapter 1, and what does it say? The Word, Jesus, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. So where is the presence of God as the New Testament dawns? Not in the temple. It now comes to us in a person. The Word became flesh and He dwelt. He tabernacled among us. And ultimately, what happens with Jesus? That just like the temple, the place of God's presence is where the sacrifice would happen, the temple presence of Jesus on earth is where the ultimate sacrifice would happen. And so Jesus comes to earth as God's presence on earth. A baby, a young boy, a young man, eventually a full-grown man. God's presence on earth. But then what happens? He ascends. And so we're still asking the question, well, where's the presence of God? If it was once in the tabernacle and then in the temple and then it was in Jesus for those 33 years on earth and then the the temple rises and he ascends into heaven and if he's the presence of God on earth, then where now is the presence of God? The dwelling place on earth now, Christian, is not in a building made of stone, but in a building made of living stones. As the Apostle Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I actually have a few of these up here. Because I want you to see how vital this is. Matt, can you help me out? Turn it on. Boom. He's a good living stone. So you like you yourselves, 
You're like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you Christians, all of you, are living stones that are being built up and built up into a spiritual house. You're a spiritual house where spiritual sacrifices are acceptable. Or what about another text in Ephesians 2? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And listen here in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I could take you elsewhere, but this suffices for us. Notice where the dwelling place of God is now. It is in the members of the household of God. So God's dwelling place is in the church His people. And as the church advances, his dwelling place advances all over the globe. Like like one author has said, our task as a church is to be God's temple, so filled with his presence that we expand and fill the earth with that glorious presence until God finally accomplishes this goal completely at the end of the time. So the temple isn't a centralized place anymore where you go and and make a great journey to a, a, a specific place. The temple is spread as far as the people of God are spread, filled with His presence, expanding His presence over the globe until He returns as His kingdom advances. As biblical revival happens and more people are added to the kingdom of God, the temple is spread and spread and spread all over the world. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ is the most important institution on the face of the earth because it is where God dwells. And again, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about you. And some could look at a smaller church like ours and maybe think that ultimately there's not going to be that much consequence in comparison to maybe a a really large church. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Because Windsor Christian Fellowship is an assembly of living stones that are being built up together that is a part of the greater temple that is being spread throughout the entire earth. And so our church family, living stones, you and I, are so important. Not because we are inherently important in and of ourselves, that we're just special people because we show up to this, but no, we're special because God has chosen to indwell us. He has chosen to live inside of us. And so you consider all of the things in Nehemiah that the people are doing for the temple. They're bringing and sacrificing their wood, their bread, their tithes, and whatever else for the sake of the temple of God. How much more should you and I be willing to live sacrificially on behalf of the temple of God on earth right now, the church? If the church people are the dwelling place of God, how could we not live and sacrificial love for one another. God dwells in you. Do good to all, the Bible says, especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to those who are the temple. We have such a cavalier attitude toward the church. Again, I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the people. We have such a Sunday morning mentality about the church, and it has to stop. 
We need to sacrifice our own schedules for the sake of one another. We need to sacrifice our belongings and give to one another. We need to sacrifice our finances and help each other out. We need to sacrifice our time and pray with one another and pray for one another and read God's word and study it together. Keep each other accountable. The temple of God on earth, the people of God, is worth every sacrifice that you can make for her. And the reason I know this is because God didn't spare his own son for the people of God. And so often we flinch at changing our schedule or sacrificing our schedule for the people of God. An obvious indication of of biblical revival is a declaration of allegiance to God. And a declaration of allegiance to God must include a declaration of allegiance to the place where God dwells, his people. We are in desperate need of biblical revival. We at Windsor Christian Fellowship right now, we are not experiencing biblical revival. We've got to pray for it. Ask God to give it to us. We need a renewed thirst for God's word. We need an unreserved confession of sin. And we need to declare our utter allegiance to God alone. But there is coming a day when there will be no need for revival. In the great scene from Revelation 21 and 22, in regard to the new heavens and the new earth, notice what Revelation chapter 21 says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the keyword dwelling place, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. A city with no temple? That would seem odd unless the temple is Jesus himself. The dwelling place of God with man. He will dwell with them and God will be with us in our presence and will be in his presence forever. And in that day when it's all been said and done on earth and he has made his judgments and he has eradicated evil and he has fully and finally done away with Satan and he has wiped all the tears from our eyes. On that day, there will be no need to call for revival. There will be no preacher in the new heaven and the new earth saying we need to confess our sins or we need a renewed thirst for the word of God or we need to declare our allegiance to God because all of that will be perfect and right. There will be no need for revival. We will forever be perfectly revived. Our thirst will be quenched in the presence of the word of God himself. We will have no need to confess our sins. We will be sinless. And we will have no need to declare our allegiance to him. Because in that day, our relationship to the God who has chosen us and purchased us and dwelt within us will be perfect. But until that day, we continue to pray that God by his spirit who dwells within us, that he will revive us. And let's pray now that he will do so.